Right, the reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, from verse 11 down to verse 22. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm really grateful for uh, everybody who's part of this church, and I'm particularly grateful for um, those who carry on their work without gratitude, and I should have said thank you to Fee as well for heading up all those ministries, So we thank the volunteers, but actually without Fee, um, none of those things would take place, so bless you, thank you so much. And also thank you to Tim and the musicians, because they quietly covered the fact that I'd made a mistake in the, uh, following the order of service that they were expecting, so thank you for that too. In the passage we're exploring this morning, Paul was trying to explain to his readers, who were Christian believers in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding area, and who were mostly not from a Jewish background. What he was trying to explain to them was that in Christ, everyone is included. There are no divisions. It's worth us remembering that Paul had been a Jew himself. He'd been a fanatical Pharisee, and a passionate persecutor of Christians. And then he'd had a life-transforming encounter with Jesus. It transformed not only the way he saw himself, 
but the way he believed God sees everyone. Jewish people in those days had a very clear sense that they were God's chosen people and therefore others were second class. You can see this in the way that Paul quotes the scornful way that the Jewish people describe those who are not Jewish, known as Gentiles. We translate it in our Bibles as uncircumcised. Literally, it meant, ha, they've still got their foreskins. It was intended as an insult. He also writes about those who are far away and those who are near. And actually, that too was a derogatory term that was used by Jewish people to describe those who were not Jews. They were talking about a literal and a metaphorical distance. The literal meaning was, you're far away from the temple in Jerusalem, which was the center of Jewish worship, the focus of first century Judaism. But that was also a metaphor for how close you were to God. If you were Jewish in Israel, you lived close to the temple and you were close to God. If you weren't, you were far away from both. Now, although Paul had been able to see in Jesus that this was no longer correct, that this was not how God saw people, there were Christians who had been Jews and had come to faith in Jesus who still carried those prejudices with them. They looked down on other Christians who didn't have that heritage. That's why it's significant that Paul says in verse 13 that in Jesus, those who are far away, the Gentiles, are now brought near. Everyone is included. It was quite radical for Paul to be declaring this. And it was really significant for those Christians in Ephesus who were mostly non-Jewish background that Paul writes to explain that the old divisions no longer exist for those who are in Christ. Now, bearing in mind that he wrote to those who, who had felt excluded, he wanted to build them up, to reassure them of their equal status and inclusion, that in Christ there should be no divisions. Now, to try to explain this, he creates a kind of spiritual stew. He mixes together three different metaphors and seems to put them all in the same pot and then give them a good stir about those who are in Christ. So first of all, he talks about those who are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Then he talks about those who are members of God's household. And then he describes them as a new temple. So we're going to examine those three metaphors together and see how they help us to understand what Paul was trying to say about unity in the church. Remember, this letter was written at the height of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was one of the regional capitals of the empire. And within the Roman Empire, there were some who were citizens. And then there was everybody else. Citizens were the people who had the status, the rights, the privilege. They were the only ones who could vote. They were the only ones who could own property. They were the only ones who could marry whoever they wanted. 
If you were not a citizen, you had no say in politics, no real wealth or security, and weren't free to marry whoever you wanted. And in this letter, Paul contrasts citizenship with those who are effectively refugees or asylum seekers. Perhaps, again, this is a reference to how non-Jewish people were regarded by those who were from Jewish heritage. He uses the words foreigners or strangers. Actually, the, the real world, real word is aliens. Visitors who had no rights at all. Sounds a bit familiar to those who arrive in this country as asylum seekers, doesn't it? And Paul wrote to a group of people who'd been feeling like that. That they were being seen as strangers, foreigners, you don't belong. You're not citizens in the kingdom of God. Or even in the church. And Paul writes that because of what God has done through Jesus on the cross, dying for everyone, they are now full citizens along with everybody else. Nobody is second class in God's kingdom. And Paul writes about here one of the effects of Jesus' death on the cross being about him bringing peace and reconciliation between people who may have been isolated from each other before. And he used really strong language. He described these two groups as having a barrier or a partition between them, a dividing wall of hostility, he writes. In fact, hostility is probably not, not even a strong enough translation. The word describes people who are actually enemies. And it seems he's making an architectural reference as well. In Jer the temple in Jerusalem, the outer courtyard was known as the cause of Gentiles. That's where anybody could go to pray, non-Jews included. That's the area that had been turned into a marketplace that made Jesus so angry because the only place where non-Jewish people could go had been turned into a place of trade. To separate the area for Gentiles from the rest of the temple, which was for Jews only, there was a balustrade. It was there to keep out the undesirables. It became known as a dividing wall of hostility. So let me enlarge that for you, and hopefully you can see. So to the other side of the temple bit, that's the court of Gentiles, and then there's this barrier. And Paul was saying that effectively when Jesus died, he tore down that wall, representing that everybody has equal access to God in Christ. It's the same image, the same sort of message as when the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, giving everyone access into the Holy of Holies. So when Jesus died, God's plan to reconcile everyone to him and to each other reaches its dramatic conclusion. And Paul says that those who were once enemies are now one. I tried to think of an image that will help me to, to grasp this, and this is what I've come up with. Um, 
that's Plymouth Sound. And on one side, you've got the River Tamar, and the other side, you've got the River Plym. Those rivers never meet until they get to Plymouth Sound. And once they're in Plymouth Sound, they merge and they become indistinct. You can't separate the River Plym from the River Tamar because they have now become one. That's the image that Paul is trying to get across to everyone and to us this morning, that church should be like that. Any differences don't matter because we're all united in Jesus. We have him in common above and beyond anything else. We're all fellow citizens. The second of Paul's mixed-up metaphors is that we're all members of God's household. Now, if you excuse the pun, Ephesian Christians would have been very familiar with the idea of familia. Familia is the, the Latin word, the, the word the Romans used to describe a household. So imagine the word family with an A on the end, familia. And the familia, the household, was the basic unit of Roman society. And it was much more than what we would consider the nuclear family. Because it included everyone. It included slaves, servants, freed slaves, as well as extended family and relatives. It was a micro-community, usually headed up by the father of the family. To be a member of a household was to belong to a place of security. It was to belong to something that mattered. Everyone was taken care of within the familiar. So when Paul writes that everyone is part of God's household, God's familiar, he was saying that everyone belongs. If you're part of God's familiar, he is on your side. He is there for you. And Paul says that through Jesus' death on the cross, All people have equal access to God, the Father, by the same Spirit. All Christians, he's writing, are part of this one household, this familia, where God the Father is the head of the household. There's not two households. We are one. That's the point. And then there's the third image. We the church are being built as a new temple. Now remember how important the temple was for the Jewish people? It wasn't only there as a place of worship, it was actually a place of national pride. It was supposed to be a symbol of national identity. If I was to show you this picture, the Eiffel Tower, you immediately think of which country? France. And if I show you this, the Taj Mahal, you think of India. They represent those countries. And the Jerusalem temple had that same sort of representative function. It was a national symbol of Israel. That's why it was so devastating when the temple was destroyed in AD 70. It's why the only bit that's left standing, one of the foundation walls, is known as the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. Paul was saying 
by using this image, that everyone is now being built into God's temple. When people look at us, the church, they should immediately think of God's kingdom in the same way that the Jerusalem temple would have made people think of the nation of Israel. And Paul extends this metaphor a little further. First of all, he talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, the first stone to be laid in a building, as you'd expect from a corner. And the walls of the building line up from this cornerstone. Everything depends on it. And so we, as God's temple, as his living temple, align ourselves with Jesus. And we're all being built together from him. And then Paul goes a little further with his temple image. The reason that in the Jerusalem temple there was an area in the very center that was cordoned off from everyone, the Holy of Holies, was it was kind of assumed that that's where God lived. Not the only place, but you could find God there. And Paul takes that image and applies it to us, the church, and says, God lives there. God lives here. God lives in us, collectively, as well as individually. Well, so what? What's all this got to do with us in 21st century Britain? What's it got to do with Mutley Baptist Church? We don't have a division between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul wrote so clearly about this, that one of the effects of Jesus dying on the cross for the whole world is that divisions, which mean that some are excluded from God, have been destroyed, done away with. He wrote that Jesus' intention was to create in himself, in Christ, one new humanity out of the two. He writes, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He couldn't have made it any clearer. But sadly, even after Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, throughout history, churches have divided. They divide over differences in doctrine, ethics, power, race, gender, sexuality. Whatever you think of issues on which churches divide, I want to suggest that because of what Paul writes here, the reality is, It's undermining and maybe even undoing some of what Jesus achieved on the cross by bringing people together. Now, we know in this church only too painfully how true that is from our recent past. And many of us are carrying deep scars and wounds. And even me just mentioning this now may have triggered all sorts of memories for you. If so, I'm really sorry. That's not my intention. And if you need to talk or pray with someone, please do. Where I feel led to finish today is to go to the root of the division that Paul was trying to address. Because what had happened was that the believers had considered their heritage to be more important than the fact that they were together in Christ. And it wasn't just a problem of the Jewish Christians looking down on the Gentile Christians. It's quite likely that the Gentile Christians disparaged the Jewish Christians 
because of seeing them as, well, superior. It had become a them and us situation. And Paul's three images are supposed to be helping us to see beyond that, that we're fellow citizens in God's kingdom. We're all members of God's one household. We're all part of this living temple. And because of that, we are in Christ, and that is the most important thing. There should be no equivalent of the division between Jew and Gentile in the church. So this morning, maybe you look around physically or in your imagination, and you look at other people in the church and you think, well, they're more important than me. Or maybe you think others are less important than you. I want to say as strongly as I can that you are wrong. Whatever you tell yourself, whatever anybody else may say to you, you are loved by God, you are uniquely created created by God, you matter. Every single person is loved unrelentingly by God. Jesus' death on the cross was for you as much as it was for me and anyone else. We are one. And we should resist and get rid of anything that threatens to divide what Jesus has brought together through his death on the cross. One of our values as a church is to be lovingly inclusive. And we describe it like this. Like Jesus, celebrating and affirming every person and refusing to discriminate. Valuing everyone and being accessible to all. Ensuring everyone has a safe place in God's family and especially caring for and welcoming those who've been marginalized. You matter. Nobody is a second-class Christian here or a second-class citizen. You are included. You're an integral part of God's family, of his household. You belong. You're an essential part of Christ's living temple. You are loved. Let's just pause for a moment in prayer. Jesus, may we never think of ourselves as less important than anybody else in your family, your household, your kingdom, your new living temple. If we take nothing away from today than this, help us to take away that everybody matters, including Help us as a church to take notice of those who feel like they don't. To take notice and take action. If there are things that we say or do or simply the way that we are that makes some people feel excluded or on the margins. Jesus, when you died on the cross, you died for everybody. Because your love 
is for every single person on this planet. We pray that your spirit will minister to our hearts and our minds. That we might be reassured that in Christ we are one. Help that to be a reality for us, we pray. Amen.